Hi everybody, Liam here. Just a few things before we start the show. First of all, last night I launched my new collaboration with Oaklandish at the Cal Academy of Sciences. Thank you so much to everyone who came out. The response was incredible. I talked about the history of the key system, which you're going to hear all about in today's episode, and we debuted the new East Bay Yesterday hats and shirts, which were inspired by the key system's flying key logo. Uh, the clothes look dope. They were made right here in Oakland, and they'll only be available for a limited time. You can find them at the Oaklandish store, either in person or online. In other East Bay Yesterday merchandise news, there are still a few days left to order the long-lost Oakland puzzle. I'll be doing a free event on July 31st where I'll be talking about the Long Lost Oakland project, uh, but we won't be selling puzzles on site. We've got to put in the order first and get them printed. So if you want one, go to Oakland Puzzle Company and get it while the getting's good. Okay, the last thing I want to mention is another local history podcast that I'm a big fan of. The show is called Revolutionary Care, an Oakland story. And uh, this show explains how the Black Panthers setting up community clinics here in Oakland led to massive changes in how the medical establishment treats sickle cell anemia, an illness that predominantly affects African Americans. It's an incredible story. Um, it, it explains how grassroots organizing can really lead to systemic change. And uh, if you like my show, I really think you will dig this one. Again, it's called Revolutionary Care, an Oakland story. It was created by UCSF Benioff Children's Hospitals, and you can find it anywhere you get podcasts. I will also drop a link in my show notes. Big, big thank you to UCSF Benioff Children's Hospitals for supporting this episode of East Bay Yesterday. That's about it for now. Sign up for my newsletter if you want to find out about more upcoming events. Uh, I'll be doing a few things in October and uh, possibly sooner. Details to come. Okay, let's start the show. You're listening to East Bay Yesterday. This show is about history, but it's not stuck in the past. Let's begin. Let's begin. There's a phrase that you've heard a million times. It goes something like this. You don't know what you've got until you lose it. It's a cliche because it's human nature. We take things for granted until we don't have them anymore. For 16 years, I lived within about 10 minutes walking distance from BART. And it wasn't very often that I stopped to think about how much better that made my life. But now that I don't live super close to a BART stop, uh, yeah, I definitely miss that proximity. I didn't really understand how much better living near BART made my quality of life until I didn't have it anymore. For the past few months, I've been researching the key system long before BART or AC Transit or even highways. The key system was how most people got around the East Bay and across the bay to San Francisco. It was a network of mostly electric streetcars and ferries. And by the time it got shut down, I think most people took it for granted. By 1958, 
its final year of operations. The key system's infrastructure was crumbling and outdated, and most of its routes had already been amputated. Folks were told that cars and buses were the future, and it was an era when people were hopeful about the future. But there were a few people, guys like John Harder, who realized what the Bay Area was losing. He knew that once those key system tracks were ripped up, that there was no going back. John wanted to savor those streetcars just as long as he could. So on the key system's very last day, John Harder decided to take his camera and ride those streetcars for nearly 20 hours straight in order to capture the end of an era. But let me back up for a second. John Harder, he was born in Alameda in 1941, and he loved streetcars for as long as he could remember. My grandparents lived, uh, they came over to Oakland from the San Francisco earthquake. They were descendants of Portugal. They lived out in East Oakland, as I remember, and it was 83rd I got off and then up to Plymouth Street, and they had a big house, and a, he had a grocery store, and he was in all the Portuguese stuff, but he, to get there was the issue. I got so bad at wanting to ride streetcars that the deal was that every time we went out there, my father would drive out and meet us there. My mother took, went over with me to Oakland, and we hopped a streetcar. <laughs> Wait, one, you, you didn't want to drive with yeah. your dad? You wanted to ride the streetcar? Absolutely. Just... That's exactly what I did. And I had this little changer <laughs> that had the tokens in it. I would drive my mother nuts. Do you remember what you were really into when you were, say, eight or nine years old? I'm in my 40s now, and when I think back to that age, I remember playing with G.I. Joes, Nintendo games, you know, pretty much nothing I still care about. John Harder is in his 80s, and after all these years, he's still passionate about the key system. Before I even really started asking him questions, he was already bursting with stories like this one. I was on the streetcar, and we sat in the same section with my mother. She sat at the window, and I sat outside. When the when we wanted to get off, I punched the button, you know, type thing. Mm -hmm. And the motorman went across east, past East 14th Street when it stopped right at the throat of that private right-of-way between East 14th Street and Foothill Boulevard that led into the central car barn, okay? He mm -hmm. stopped it, period. The car was probably half full, which is quite a few people. And I was basically a shy kid. The motorman stopped the car, turned around and said, hey son, come on up here, I wanted to, the true story. And it, I said, I didn't want to go. And my mother says, go ahead, John. And she kept pushing me out of the seat. So I walked up and he sat me down on the car, the, the seat, and the controller, and he took my hand and put it on the controller and he took his hand and he pushed down on it or something and i and he ratcheted it up and i remember that and he went the whole distance of the uh the private right away yeah not through the intersection you know <laughs> yeah that was enough yeah and i and then he slowed it down and he started it up you got and, to feel what it was like oh, to God, have that I, power i couldn't i just, <laughs> Uh, you know, and when it was done, everybody in the damn streetcar plot started doing this. <laughs> and that really embarrassed me. 
and uh, oh. you know. So, but it was sort of like a dream come true for you, even though you had to be sort of cajoled into yeah. it there. Yeah, huh? uh, yeah. John was 17 years old when the key system's final day of service was announced. He thought he was ready for a 20-hour marathon of riding the rails and taking photos of every remaining line, but nothing could have prepared him for what actually happened. The explosions, cigar-smoking conductors going way too fast, angry policemen on Broadway. Hearing him tell it, I felt I was there. But this episode won't just be a nostalgic trip down long-gone tracks. On today's show, we're going to ride the whole line of key system history because you can't really know why this area looks the way that it does now without understanding the forces that built it. And the key system was much more than just a transit network. It was the most powerful engine of development, at least for a few pivotal decades. You're listening to East Bay Yesterday. I'm your host, Liam O'Donohue. All aboard! We're actually going uphill right now. The river represents the low point. The museum is actually almost at the high point. A few weeks ago, I visited a kind of magical place called the Western Railway Museum. It's home to dozens of old trains, a massive archive, and a restored track that stretches for miles across the rolling countryside of rural Solano County, about an hour from Oakland. I went there because it's the only place where you can still ride one of the old key system cars, which was awesome. Also, I wanted to talk to this man. Well, for me, the, the fascination of the key system was simply the imagination that it took to build it. That's the voice of Bob Immergluck. He used to be a mechanical engineer for BART, but even though he's retired, he's still working on trains. The ones he volunteers to work on now are a lot older than even the oldest BART cars. Most of them are so old that when a part breaks, he has to build a new one from scratch. But Bob's interest in rail history has to do with a lot more than just the equipment. For me, the fascination of the key system is how one person with a dream can impact an entire geographical era, area and the entire history of an area. The person Bob was referring to was a man named Francis Marion Smith. Francis was better known as Borax Smith, or even the Borax King, because that's how he made his fortune. Scraping Borax out of the hellscape deserts of western Nevada and Death Valley. Quick science lesson. Borax is a kind of salt compound that's been used in soap, laundry detergents, pesticides, enamels, metal welding products, fire retardants, and a million other things. The point is, if this scrappy young miner hadn't gotten lucky, the East Bay might look a whole lot different today. Borax Smith came to Oakland in the 1880s. In the 1890s, he went into real estate. And he essentially constructed an entire transportation system um, that outlived him by 30 years. So it's quite amazing that, that one person 
with a dream can come and create something like this that we can talk about today and look at what he built and look at Oakland and still go down the streets of Oakland and see the houses that were built on Borax Smith's property, to see the Claremont Hotel that was built by Borax Smith, to see all these landmarks in the East Bay that were essentially created by the dreams of one man who had money rattling around in his pocket because he discovered Borax. <laughs> Obviously, Borax Smith didn't build the entire key system by himself, but it wouldn't have happened without him. See, until Borax came along, there were a bunch of competing transit companies, which didn't make a lot of sense. They were running duplicate routes, it was confusing, not very profitable, and it was just better, economically and logistically, to consolidate all these lines under a single company. So, that's what Borax did. Quick side note, one of the challenges of public transportation in the Bay is all the different agencies it's not always easy to get, say, Caltrans, BART, Muni, AC Transit, Samtrans, etc., etc., on the same page, which makes optimizing regional service and long-term planning extremely challenging. It helps that these are all public agencies, unlike in Borax's day, when there were private companies actively competing with each other. But this lack of a unified system, it's still an issue. Okay, so back to the 1890s. Borax and his partners are buying up all these transit lines to bring them under one umbrella, but that was only part of the master plan. The other part was creating a development firm called the Realty Syndicate. The strategy was simple. Use the Realty Syndicate to buy up cheap, undeveloped land throughout the East Bay. They got about 13,000 acres. Then use the key system to build transit lines out to that property. Those rails instantly made the land a lot more valuable. Then they'd sell it off to other real estate developers to subdivide and create new neighborhoods or just sell the mortgages directly. And cha-ching! Borak Smith realized that to make his properties valuable for subdividing, uh, he needed to provide transportation. Uh, this was the era of the horse and buggy and the dirt road. Roads were dusty. Uh, they were muddy in the winter, and they were covered with horse manure and flies. Um, if you wanted to sell land and you wanted to separate yourself from all the other people selling land, uh, you needed to have some kind of transportation that was clean and fast and comfortable to your subdivision. So Borax Smith viewed uh, buying the trolley car lines as part of his real estate development. Borax's goal wasn't to make money from the key system. The real cash came from the realty syndicate. He even said, quote, the matter of relations between the two companies has been very similar to the relation between two pockets in the same man's trousers. In other words, if the key system was one pocket and the realty syndicate was another pocket, it didn't matter where the money was because Borax was wearing the pants. Oh, and another crucial part of this plan involved building a pier for the streetcars that reached way out into the bay. Remember, there was no bridge yet, so commuters crossing the bay rode streetcars out to the key system's ferry terminal and took Borax's boats for the rest of the way. This three-mile-long pier shortened commute times significantly, which was another huge selling point, because upwardly mobile San Francisco businessmen 
were one of the main target demos for this real estate in new neighborhoods like Trestle Glen. The timing of this building boom was perfect because after the 1906 earthquake, a lot of people were looking to move out of the city. Here's a clip from a 1945 documentary called March of Progress that sums up what happened. Thousands of San Franciscans found a haven and new homes in the East Bay where one of the West's most colorful characters, Borak Smith, had come to found the key route to provide transportation adequate to the needs of this area in which he saw such tremendous possibilities. This is a huge topic. At its height, the key system's lines stretched for nearly 70 miles from Richmond and San Pablo up north, all the way down through San Leandro and Hayward in the south. So there's a lot we're not going to cover today, but I do want to mention a few important points. Number one, I'm using the term key system as a bit of a catch-all. The company's structure was extremely convoluted over the years due to various ownership changes, mergers, takeovers, yada yada. So the official name changed a bunch of times, but people knew it as the key system. So that's what I'm going with. The name first appeared in 1903, and it was a reference to the fact that if you looked at a map of the early lines, it was sort of in the shape of a key with Berkeley, Piedmont, and Oakland forming the key's handle. Uh, the pier out in the bay forming the key shaft and the ferry slips forming the, the teeth or the ridges at the end of the key. I'll post a photo on East Bay Yesterday's Instagram. It, it really does look like a key. Point number two. I'm also simplifying the terminology related to rail-oriented transit. The terms streetcar and trolley uh, can be basically used interchangeably, but interurbans, trains, these usually refer to different things. Look, it's complicated. Like, how now? You might say, I'm in a BART car instead of on a BART train. Uh, it all goes back to ancient Latin, the term carum or carus, meaning wheeled vehicle. And then you had carriages. And, you know, I'm just going to stop right there, really. I just don't want the train people to get mad at me if I use the wrong word somewhere. All right. Now, the final point, And this one is by far the most important. Racism. During Borak Smith's era, it was routine for real estate listings to include language about, quote, no Chinese, Japanese, Negroes, or Filipinos. White supremacist ideology was entrenched through segregation, and we're still dealing with the legacy of that. I've covered this in many episodes and focused on the history of housing discrimination specifically in episode 56. So yeah, all that just needs to be acknowledged because for far too long, it was ignored. Like, for example, that documentary that I played a clip from a minute ago, March of Progress, zero mention of people of color in this film. But with a new era of transportation and the influx of people from San Francisco, development progressed in leaps and bounds until the brightest dream of Francis Marion Smith was more than realized. Transportation, along which flows the lifeblood of modern civilization, had indeed brought growth and progress. And the sunny side of the bay took its rightful place as one of the leading communities of the nation. I'm just going to cut to the chase here. In 1913, Borak Smith's empire collapsed, and he lost control of the key system. It turns out that when you're borrowing lots of money to expand, if there's an economic downturn and you're not making enough to cover your debts, 
Yeah, bankers don't like that. Eventually, Borax got back to his roots and made another fortune. And you guessed it, the Borax game. But he was out of the streetcar business for good. From 1913 onward, it was essentially various configurations of investors who ran the key system. And they all learned, one after another, that it's very difficult to make a profit from mass transit. One major factor was growing competition from automobiles, but there were lots of reasons. Expensive track maintenance, keeping up with changing technology, rising labor costs, regulations on fare increases. Basically the same reasons why it still makes the most sense for these entities to be publicly owned and subsidized to this day. Anyway, for decades, millions of riders depended on the key system to get around but the company's shaky finances were a consistent problem. Here's Bob Immergluck again. What was necessary in the 1930s, most of, of Borax Smith's cars, uh, trolley cars, were now about 20 to 30 years old. That was the life expectancy of a trolley car. And he would have been expected under normal circumstances, uh, or the key system, excuse me, Borax Smith was no longer involved, but the key system in the 1930s and every other trolley car system needed to upgrade their equipment. They needed to take these old wooden cars from the turn of the century, scrap them, and buy new cars. The fact of the depression was that nobody had the money to do that. And so all of these trolley car companies basically crippled their way through the depression, um, making do, uh, rebuilding over and over again wooden cars that were 20 and 30 years old, salvaging them, upgrading them, uh, doing what they could, uh, anything short of buying a new car. Uh, and then, of course, World War II entered uh, this picture. And that was uh, exhilarating and devastating for the trolley car companies. It was exhilarating because due to wartime shortages of gasoline and rubber uh, and rationing, all of a sudden uh, they had a huge increase in ridership during World War II. But it was devastating because they were not allowed to spend any money maintaining or upgrading their equipment. So here we have, they've spent 10 years in the Depression, basically getting by, uh, unable to invest in new cars, unable to invest in rebuilding their tracks, which also needed to be replaced. The war hits, and they all of a sudden have their dreams fulfilled in terms of passenger traffic, but they are not allowed to buy any new cars or maintain their track or their equipment. The net result was at the end of World War II, everything was worn out. They had gone 10 years of depression and five years of war, and they needed a total rebuild, and there was no money. And that was when uh, National City Lines entered the picture. You might not be familiar with the name National City Lines, but that was kind of the point. Technically, it was a bus company, but really, it was a front for corporations in the auto and oil industries. General Motors, Firestone Tires, Standard Oil, now known as Chevron, and a few others. They were the real money and power behind national city lines. Sometimes people refer to what happened next as a conspiracy theory, but it's not really a theory. What these companies did has been proven in court. It's been the basis of books and documentaries, and it even inspired the 1988 blockbuster film Who Framed Roger Rabbit. In this scene, a group of kids is talking to the main character, 
a detective, as he's riding a streetcar. Hey, mister, ain't you got a car? Who needs a car in L.A.? We got the best public transportation system in the world. Who Framed Roger Rabbit is set in 1940s Los Angeles. Back then, L.A. really did have a great network of rail transit. The electric trolleys were known as the red cars. In the movie's final showdown, the villain, a shady creep named Judge Doom, reveals his grand scheme to the detective. Several months ago, I had the good providence to stumble upon the plan of the city councils, a construction plan of epic proportions. We are calling it a freeway. Freeway? What the hell's a freeway? Eight lanes of shimmering cement running from here to Pasadena. Smooth, safe, fast. Traffic jams will be a thing of the past. I see a place where people get on and off the freeway. On and off, off and on, all day, all night. Soon, where Toontown once stood will be a stream of gas stations. Inexpensive motels, restaurants that serve rapidly prepared food, tire salons, automobile dealerships, and wonderful, wonderful billboards reaching as far as the eye can see. My God, it'll be beautiful. Come on. Nobody's gonna drive this lousy freeway when they can take the red car for a nickel. Oh, they'll drive. They'll have to. You see, I fought the red car so I could dismantle it. This movie was fiction. I mean, the title character was a talking rabbit who was married to a sexy nightclub singer. But the thing about Judge Doom buying up a city's rail lines so he could dismantle them, that's exactly what National City Lines did in about two dozen cities across the United States. They took control of the key system in 1946. The National City Line scheme was hatched behind closed doors, but it was too audacious to remain secret forever. That didn't really matter, though. By the time the truth got out, the damage was already done. Here's a clip from a 1984 KTVU news story about the downfall of the key system and other Bay Area rail lines. People were taking to the auto. The two bridges were open, the trains needed upgrading, but something else happened to speed the demise of the Bay Area's interurban system. What happened was illegal, and the giant American corporations involved were all found guilty by a jury in a federal court of law. In 1949, General Motors, Standard Oil, Mack Truck, National City Bus Lines, Phillips Petroleum, and others were all found guilty of violating the Sherman Antitrust Act. They systematically dismantled rail service all across the country and replaced the rails with buses. For this, they were fined $5,000 each, hardly enough to throw any of the involved corporations into receivership. Some rail systems disappeared literally overnight to be replaced by autos and buses. Buses which were built by General Motors and Mack, fueled by Chevron and Phillips, and rolling on tires built by Firestone. 
solely at the pursuit of profit at the expense of the common good, these corporations proceeded to bury a transit system that was indeed sick, but it was far from dead. Here's where the story gets a little sticky. Again, nobody denies that there was a cabal of automotive and oil companies that bought up electric rail lines so they could replace them with gas-burning buses made by those same companies. However, the controversy, a controversy that's still hotly debated in some circles, is whether or not the key system and other rail networks like it could have survived if national city lines hadn't come along and put them out of business. National city lines is presented as being evil. If you've ever seen who framed Roger Rabbit, you know, but in fact, they were businessmen and they had a good business case. They could prove to you on paper very easily that it didn't make any sense at all to rebuild the trolley car tracks or to buy new trolley cars because you could buy buses much cheaper. The other thing that happened after the war was the advent of suburbs and suburban housing development. All public transit, but especially streetcars, needs density to be viable. After World War II, people, specifically middle-class white people, were buying cars and moving out to the suburbs, places where every family has their own individual house and yard. Those neighborhoods just aren't dense enough to support much rail-based transit. This is why San Francisco has eight BART stops, while a place like Walnut Creek only has one. Now, we could have a whole other discussion about the institutional forces that incentivized white flight. We could talk about the political power of the oil lobby and auto manufacturers that led to subsidized highways and cheap gas. We could discuss downzoning, parking minimums, systemic divestment from increasingly black and brown urban areas. And honestly, in order to understand how our society is structured, you really do need to understand all those factors. But this is a podcast, not a book. So I'll just say, if you were a business, trying to squeeze profit from a mass transit network in the 1940s, then yeah, investing in buses instead of a track-based system was probably the right move. The buses, because they ran on the public roads, which were paid for with gasoline taxes back then, made perfect economic sense. A bus line could be routed anywhere. You build a new um, suburb, that's fine. You just build roads to it and the buses ride on those roads. You don't have to build track. You don't have to buy extra trolley cars. So national city lines, again, presented as being um, villains, were in fact astute business people. Or maybe they were villains and astute business people. <laughs> those two categories aren't mutually exclusive. Was NCL's main goal really to launch successful bus lines? or simply to wipe out rail-based competition. If not for NCL, could a few of the key systems, main lines along the busiest thoroughfares have survived, maybe even up until today? Again, people still debate questions like this. My viewpoint here is not popular. Uh, people, <laughs> love, people love to talk about, about plots and, and, and um, uh, evil behind the scenes maneuvering, but the reality is this was economics. Everybody involved here was trying to, take, to make money. National city lines did not make money, however. They couldn't wring a profit from operating buses in the East Bay, and the company was sold 
to the newly formed public bus network that we all know as AC Transit. That happened in 1960. And now, or let's just say even in the best of times, you know, good economy, lots of riders, AC Transit, like all mass transit networks in the U.S., requires support from taxpayers to survive. If you're just looking at costs and revenues, though, you're really missing the big picture when it comes to planning for how people are going to move through cities. You've also got to consider the environment, pedestrian safety, the psychological toll of sitting in gridlock traffic every day, and the list goes on and on. For most of us, it's hard to grasp what we lost when the key system went away. So that's why I wanted to hear from people who lived through it. One of the people I talked to was a woman named Mickey Simmons. She was born in 1933 and grew up in Oakland. Here's what Mickey said when I asked how she felt about the key system going away. I was concerned because people used it to go everywhere in the Bay Area. The key system was very efficient. And the sad part about the whole thing was it affected everybody's lives so much that I just thought how often they're going to have to drive and and they're not going to get as many places as efficiently as they they could. And also, it was a lot of fun to ride the train. It was it, there were nice, a lot of people there, all different ages, and um, you get to sit next to people who were a little different than you were that you could talk to, and it, it was very good and it also became uh, a standby for me because uh, my boyfriend at San Francisco State didn't have a car <laughs> so we went a lot of places on on the, the key system now we return to John Harder who you heard from at the beginning of this episode. So, it's April 20th, 1958, and John is gearing up for the very last day and night of the key system. He was 17 years old, still living with his parents in Alameda, and his plan was to document the end of the era by taking photos of every line that was still running. So, I told my mother that I was going to be gone for a while. She said, where are you going? I says, well, I'm going to start this morning at 7.30. The final train's at 3.30. She said, 3.30, when? And I said, not in the afternoon, Mother. I said, it's 3.30 a.m. And I, I, I decided I was going to do a system to work me back towards Alameda, stopping at the furthermost end that I could get to, okay? So I walked over, got a bus, got a 58, ended up on Broadway, walked down to 12th and uh, Washington, and at 7.30 in the morning, I took my first picture. Kind of quiet on that day, you know, at that time. But it was great for pictures because the weather had been warm. As morning turns so to afternoon, John eventually meets up with the rest of his buddies. And <laughs> this was quite a crew. The most definitive books about the key system were later written by a journalist named Harry DeMauro and a train fanatic named Vernon Sappers. Vernon was so dedicated that he used to wear a conductor's outfit, even though that wasn't really his job. Together, John, Henry, and Vernon were like the key system historian dream team. 
I'll let John pick up the story here as they were making their way back from North Berkeley. The train at uh, Solano and the Alameda left whenever it was. And I'll always remember, I sat in the first car on the left side. The motorman had the door open and his foot on the thing, you know, as smoking a, a cigar. He goes through the North Bray Tunnel and some of the rail fans torpedoed the tunnel. What does that mean? I mean? They put track torpedoes on it, the railroads do. It's a warning thing that as oh. the cars roll over it, you'll hear explosions and gotcha. stuff. Boy, did they hear explosions that night because most of us in that first cab almost fell off the chair. It was so loud. And even the motorman didn't expect it. And uh, <laughs> I still remember as they came out, uh, you know, the tunnel portal there. And that was to tell everybody that they didn't want the trains to leave. Okay, so I had no idea this was a thing, but up until a few decades ago, railroads would sometimes place these small explosive devices on tracks as warning signals. Like if it was too foggy to see the guys working on the tracks ahead, for example, they would strap down these track torpedoes. And when the conductor heard these little explosions, they sounded like gunshots, he knew it was time to slow down the train. I guess some key system fans laid them down in this tunnel as a little farewell blast off. I looked at the motorman, he was just shaking his head, but off we went. The car the cars were pretty full. But what was interesting is when we got we crossed University Avenue onto Shattuck Avenue and you get down further down the road and you're gonna make a right then, I think it was, to go to Adeline Street. You know, there's that connection. And somewhere along the line, the motorman decided to ratchet up the speed. And the track wasn't necessarily the best. And we were going like this. At this point in our conversation, John started rocking back and forth vigorously. And we were going like this. And I looked at my friend from Alameda, and that's, his name was John. And I said, you know, we're going to end up in that bar over across the street before <laughs> this is over. You guys were really shaking, huh? Oh, we were shaking. Yeah. And, but he was having a gay old time. And uh, <laughs> so on, that happened. Just so you know, John spent about half an hour telling me the story of this night, and his recollection of so many little details was astonishing. I barely know what I did last weekend, but this guy remembered what other passengers were wearing on a train he took during the Eisenhower administration. Anyway, they rode to San Francisco and back. The uh, tracks ran along the lower deck of the Bay Bridge at the time, and yeah, they basically spent the whole night reminiscing, sharing stories talking to the key system workers, and just trying to hold on to this thing that they all loved for as long as they possibly could. Well, we got down to 12th and Oak. The train waited a while. People talking. Lesser, lesser crowd than was before because it's so late. It's so the 3.30 in the morning. But still quite a few people. Okay, they moved the train out, slowly made its way down, and, uh, and right across Broadway, somebody threw us through the handle of emergency, and the train shut down. <laughs> totally. Blocked the whole Broadway. Now, it wasn't that there was a lot of people, cars on there. There wasn't. So uh, the police came down. I still remember the cops getting on and saying, when is somebody going to move this damn train? They, You know? And says, well, maybe somebody hollered, somebody hollered, well, maybe you can send a tow truck. And I still remember that. And God almighty. They finally got it going. 
And as we came down towards Bridge Yards, turned, uh, came down Poplar, moved to Louise Street, underneath the, the freeways to the bridge, you know, there was that area. And you turn there, tower number two. The key system ended more than 60 years ago, but its legacy is still everywhere. When Borax Smith was laying those tracks and building those neighborhoods, he was drawing the map of where we now live. The commercial corridors along Piedmont, Claremont, and Grand Avenues, the curving street grids of the lower foothills, and the so-called <laughs> secret stairways that shimmy up into higher neighborhoods. So much of this geography descends from an old miner with big dreams. After the key system was dismantled and regional planners decided wisely that we needed publicly owned mass transit, many of the original AC transit lines were based on old key routes. And even Bart took a page from Borax's sketchbook. He'd always wanted to build an underwater subway tunnel where the Transbay tube is now located. If you're feeling less generous, you might blame Borax for the lack of housing density that's made this such an expensive place to live. Obviously, that's not all his fault, but he might be the single person most responsible for establishing so much of Oakland and Berkeley as single-family home-oriented neighborhoods. The point I'm getting to is that transit planning is about much more than just deciding how we're going to get around. Building a transit network or dismantling one, these decisions have a huge impact on how we're going to live as a city, as a whole region. And once those decisions are made, we're locked into a trajectory that's very hard to change for decades or even longer. I bring this up because we're at a bit of another crossroads right now, in the Bay and everywhere really. Here's Bob Immergluck from the Western Railway Museum again. The internet and the personal computer are every bit as revolutionary as Ford's Model T. We are right in the middle of that right now. We have no idea where this is going because it just started. And everybody, just as the trolley car companies and the interurban companies were totally blindsided when Ford sold 15 million Model Ts. Everybody who has talked about how cities should be organized and how people should go to work is totally blindsided by the concept that you don't have to go to work, right. <laughs> that you can work without going to work. This is, this is so revolutionary that we can't, at this point, even get our arms around what this yeah. is going to lead to. And so you talk about urban transportation and trolley cars. What we have now is automobiles, and buses and airplanes are being replaced by the internet. So you are essentially replacing entire transportation systems with the internet and the computer. That's something that, because it's just beginning, because we're just in the middle of it, we can't see the forest for the trees right now. Yeah. We have no idea where, the, that, where that is leading but it's going to lead to a huge change in allocation of resources. He's right. We have no idea 
how the world will transform in our lifetimes. There were people born during the horse and buggy age who lived long enough to see rocket ships reach the moon. Right now, some are saying that the AI revolution will free us from suffering and inequality, and there's others who think it'll cause our extinction. So I get it. It's hard to plan for the future of transit because we don't know what the future will look like. But that doesn't mean we should give up pushing for something better. And at the very least, we need to protect what we already have. Because, as you've probably heard, agencies like BART have been struggling since the pandemic. Which brings us to the final voice you'll be hearing in this episode. Since everyone else I interviewed for this one was born in the 1930s or 40s, I wanted to include at least one younger perspective. So I reached out to a 16-year-old who goes by the name Cambridge Lutress on Twitter, where he can often be found sharing his thoughts on transit history. He's also a volunteer tour guide at the Western Railway Museum. When we talked, I asked Cambridge why he thought key system history was still relevant. And I'll close out this episode here with his very insightful response. There's a couple lessons to be learned, and most of them focus with the demise of the key system. And I would say it's activism and people not talking enough because when the key system abandoned their lines in 1958, it was seen generally as a shame, but a point in the march of progress. However, about two years after that, people started to realize, oh, hey, that wasn't a great idea. And I believe it was like AC Transit being founded immediately after that to take over bus lines of the key system. And I sort of feel that had more people talked and more people fought, then we could have saved it. Of course, that's all hypothetical, but I just believe that that's a lesson that we can take away. And that if we just be silent, we'll, we'll find that like our services will crumble before our eyes. Ticket in the turnstile. I don't care what train comes next. I've been riding these tracks my whole life, and I ain't done yet. Back and forth, day and night, memorized every last route. Head down, hood up, arms in, flask out, wheels spinning, floor shaking. Not another soul in sight. Just a moving diorama of the city on another frozen night. Take a seat and let your mind just unwind, son. It ain't that tough. The night train feels like the one place where your trouble can't catch up. It'll never criticize you, it'll never ask you. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of East Bay Yesterday. I've been your host, Liam O'Donoghue. Wow, I have so many people to thank for helping me out with this episode. Here we go. Stuart Sweedler of the East Bay Hills Project, Daniel Levy from the Oakland Heritage Alliance, Emily and Aaron at the Oakland History Center, Rob Arias at the Emeryville Historical Society, Gene Anderson, George Watson, Bill Buchanan, Kelly Donoghue, Stan Corich, Sandy Richardson, archive.org, and probably others who I can't think of right now. Sorry if I missed you. Uh, also, big, big shout out to Angela and the whole team at Oaklandish. Please, if you appreciate East Bay yesterday, support the show by getting a shirt or a hat. They look incredible. And uh, you can find those at the Oaklandish shop or online. As always, extra special thanks to the Patreon donors. I know I say it every time, but it's true. This show could not happen without your financial support. Music for this episode came from Richie Cunning. I used Richie's track, Last Stop, a few times in the show. If you dug it, check out the rest of his tunes. 
Last Stop is from the album Night Train, a certified Bay Area classic. Thanks again for listening. If you like this episode, now, right now, is the time to share it. Podcast apps, the thing that you're listening to this show on, they all have these little sharing tools. Send the episode to one of your friends. I'd appreciate it. Hopefully they would too. Uh, you can stay up to date with all my events through my social media and my newsletter. You can find the links to all that at eastbayyesterday.com. Okay, that's the end of the line. <laughs>